First, though, an apology has been issued after a raging party was caught on several phones and shared quite widely. That's just uh, some of the noise that could be heard from that party. Uh, if you've not seen this story already, that was from the Charlie Victorias at Big White Ski Resort. Now, a public apology has been issued in the aftermath of that party. The restaurant owner posted the apology just this morning. Justin Reed saying he was sorry for the wild atmosphere inside his establishment. My guess is that's not going to be good enough for a lot of people. Joining me now to talk more about this is Michael Ballingall, the senior VP of Sales and Marketing at Big White Ski Resort. Thanks so much for being with us. Jill, good good afternoon and good afternoon to your listeners on this beautiful spring day in BC. It is a beautiful day uh, for sure. What was your response? I I understand you were alerted to that party as it was still happening. How did that unfold? Well, you know, the the, the horror came, came to us via the staff that were working the bar that night. They came to the front desk of the Inn at Big White, uh, the hotel that the restaurant is in, and asked us to call the police, that there was no management on site at the time, and the party was getting out of hand. There was no uh, proper COVID-19 protocols in place. Uh, People weren't sitting at their tables. They uh, weren't wearing masks. Um, It was uh, out of control, to say the least. Uh, Yeah, and I think even uh, a table broke at some point with people dancing on top of it. Uh, So what happened here, as far as you know, and what we've been told is that because uh, the provincial order came out uh, that there would be no in-person inside dining happening and they shut down and what just opened up the bar when it was free booze and food for the people there? Well, it wasn't free. It it was it was 50 percent off. So they made the announcement um, just after it came down from uh, the provincial health officer at, at one o'clock on Monday that, uh, that they would hold a big party the Monday night and uh, uh, alcohol and food would be on sale for 50% off. And uh, some of the uh, resort staff were laid off uh, about three to four o'clock that day. So the majority of the people decided to uh, uh, just disregard all the, uh, the health orders that had been in place and uh, decided to have a bit of a rage, and that they did. <laughs> when you say the resort staff had been laid off, or are you talking about people that worked for that specific restaurant or people who worked for Big White? Well, we worked for Big White and worked for other restaurants at Big White. I mean, that we have nine restaurants on the mountain, and some 70 to 80 staff were laid off that day um, because only the restaurants that remained open that had patios were going to remain open for the rest of the season. And so there was a lot of people that this was a shock, um, it changed their plans almost immediately, and uh, they decided that they would go out and celebrate. What does that mean for you? And I understand this is a restaurant that would be contracted, so not uh, not uh, employees that are that are uh, direct employees for the resort. Uh, but when last time we talked to you, I think it was the last time, it was because uh, there had been an outbreak of COVID-19 in Big White, and the resort had fired people who weren't following the COVID-19 rules. So is that going to happen again? It has happened again. I mean, we have a social contract with uh, with our employees that uh, they are to abide by, um, you know, the liquor laws, uh, work safe BC laws, and uh, and the provincial health uh, officers' orders. Um, uh, the, the most of the staff that we see in the video, 
um, had been laid off already. Two staff have been terminated, and, and they fully understand that they have been terminated. And uh, we have uh, uh, executed uh, uh, orders to uh, cancel the lease immediately and to evict the owner of the bar uh, from the premises uh, uh, by the end of business tomorrow. Um, so uh, we've taken a very serious actions very, very swiftly because this is uh, a very serious breach of our contract. Uh, so when you say two staffers, so that would be two staffers that were seen in that video were at that party but had not been laid off. They've now been fired? Correct. And do you anticipate that more people then, if you see someone in that video or if you're looking, because you can see a lot of the faces in there, if somebody sees someone who is still employed, will they be fired? Um, they will be, but we, we've gone through that video um, and most of the other videos that we have received. And, and, and obviously, you know, the word travels very quickly to supervisors. What, what, what we're trying to get a handle on now is contact tracing and who's been vaccinated, who's already had COVID-19. We want to make sure this doesn't uh, escalate into a super spreader event. I mean, they're, everybody in that room. Uh, bar a couple, we're not wearing masks, we're not physically separating, and uh, we're very nervous, as, as are the, the people that were in the room and people that are roommates with, with people that are in the room. So uh, this is not uh, a situation that has gone away yet. We're going to be dealing with this from Sundays to come. People are going to need to be tested, and we're going to need to keep an eye on this. Has there been any targeted vaccination there? Because we have seen in other places like Whistler Blackcomb, even some restaurants where there have been outbreaks, some other workplaces, they have had targeted vaccine. Has there been any in Big White? Big White Ski Resort was very lucky uh, that Interior Health identified our cluster uh, and helped us through the, the, those uh, situations during the course of the winter. And two weeks ago, we hosted uh, on behalf of Interior Health a vaccination clinic where 804 people were vaccinated that are residents and workers of the mountain. So uh, we're very lucky that uh, we had we got the jab into as many of our staff members and residents as we can. And I, I might uh, be uh, uh, thinking on behalf of others here, but I'm going to suggest that most of the people in that video were probably already vaccinated because they worked on the mountain. Right. So do you think that maybe, and not, not justifying it or saying they should have done this, but do you think there might have been the mindset of, well, we've been vaccinated, now we've been fired, what's, what is there to lose? Well, they weren't fired. They were laid off due, due, you know, due to lack of work. But uh, yes, I, I would say that um, you're analyzing the situation, which probably was the mindset of many of the people in the room. Uh, have you then spoken with uh, Justin Reed, who is the owner of that restaurant of Charlie's Victoria, about this? Uh, no, I haven't personally. Our lawyers have been in touch with Justin. Justin has a meeting with uh, Interior Health, uh, with WorkSafe BC, and uh, the Liquor Licensing Board at 1 o'clock today. Um, this is a very, very serious matter that, uh, that needs to be dealt with. But he knows then, like you said, that the contract with his, his company, with his restaurant, is being terminated? Oh, he's well aware of that, yes. And, and do you think there'll be any issue or he'll, he'll, I guess you haven't heard then even through if he has legal representation, uh, if he's not okay with that or, or tends to, or uh, pro- wants to fight that? We, we take the apology at his word. He, he's an outstanding young man. I mean, he, he, uh, he had to go through the interviewing process to get the lease and, and, and he, has, he has behaved very well to all the protocols uh, up until Monday night, he has uh, run an, an incredible establishment. It was well, well received by the public. It was well run. The food was exceptional. He had a 4.5 star rating 
Um, so he's run a very good bar and restaurant at the resort uh, uh, on behalf of uh, uh, his clientele. So we were uh, we were shocked. And, and quite frankly, it, it is out of character, but it has to be dealt with in the most serious of manners. Uh, when you said that you were uh, approached or you were alerted to this party by some of the staff who realized what was going on and how wrong it was, and you mentioned they said management wasn't there. Uh, was Justin Reed there, the owner there when this happened, or, or who instigated this? Who instigated the party? Yeah. The, the, the bar was open for business as of 11 a.m. that day, and, and Justin was the one that obviously issued the 50% off food and beverage uh, to the community. Uh, I don't think Justin was there when his staff asked us to call the RCMP at 7 o'clock, but I understand that he was in the bar when the police arrived at 9. So he wasn't there, but then somebody must have called him or alerted him to what was happening. I think we could assume that that's correct. Uh, what does this mean? You mentioned also the rest of the season. How long uh, is the rest of the season? And as far as going forward, will Big White stay open for the rest of the ski uh, snowboard season? Well, th- that's a very interesting question because we're analyzing that right now. What we are seeing in real time today is an unprecedented uh, hit to our website from people from the lower mainland looking to book accommodation at the resort, not only for Easter, uh, but for the, the week that we're open after Easter. And th- this, is, this is alarming to us because we as Big White Central Reservations, our company is not accepting bookings outside the central Okanagan. But Airbnb, VRBO, Owner Direct, couch surfing, um, those are all things that we've seen happening to a certain extent over the course of the year while these provincial health orders have been in place to avoid non-essential travel. And uh, this, is, this is alarming to us, and we are meeting with the ownership group at uh, 1230 today to look at will we stay open after April the 5th. And I'm going to suggest that we probably will be closing Big White Ski Resort because we don't want to be the only resort open in the Okanagan Valley and, quite frankly, in western B.C. Uh, now that Revelstoke and Whistler have announced that they're closed. Uh, that's got to be uh, that's got to hurt that uh, you're trying to stay open and try and follow the rules, but uh, can't do it. It, 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 is, it is just simply unprecedented the amount of people we have from the lower mainland inquiring about coming to Big White uh, after the fifth of April, and so we do, you know closing the resort would close the reason for them to travel to the interior, and uh, we think that that's probably going to be the right thing to do. All right. Well, uh, Michael, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much uh, for being available and coming on the show to talk about this. And we wish everyone a great deal of safety and we hope to get the vaccine soon. Well, as we now know, Lower Mainland residents in the age group 55 to 65 can call and book an Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. But that has led to a lot of pharmacies getting a lot of phone calls and some confusion. And joining me uh, to try and clear up any of that confusion is Richard Zussman, our global news journalist based in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, so first off, they can call. It just depends if there's still appointments to go around, Jill, and whether they can actually make an appointment. That's been the big uh, mystery, I think, of the last few hours for a lot of people trying to call. So what happened with, and I know uh, Simi Sarah talked about this on her program, and they did offer some clarification this morning, but there was uh, some confusion over the fact that the notice that went out said start calling March 31st, which is today, but last night a lot of those appointments got booked. Yeah, so we know for sure the London drug appointments got booked up, but they were just three of the pharmacies involved in this. There are around 150 pharmacies 
Uh, it's important to note that they are only doling out 14,000 AstraZeneca vaccines across Metro Vancouver. These are vaccines that were set to expire on April 3rd. And so they are booking appointments before then in order to use the vaccine instead of letting it go to waste. And the province has been in conversations with the pharmacies and the pharmacy association for months and months around being used in the rollout. Uh, so they were ready in some capacity, Jill, but it also caught many pharmacies off guard when the press release came out yesterday saying starting tomorrow, uh, you can start booking those appointments. And that message didn't get to all pharmacies. My understanding with London Drugs is that what happened is so many people were calling, they started manually taking names down and booking them into appointments. I also understand that a number of other pharmacies were inundated with calls, which led to actual problems with fulfilling other prescriptions. When doctor's office or dentists or individuals were calling in with their prescriptions, the phone lines were jammed by people trying to call in to make their AstraZeneca appointments. And so there's a list now available on the British Columbia Pharmacy Association website. Uh, I have tweeted about it as well, if people want to find it that way, that lists all the pharmacies involved. And there's no guarantee that these pharmacies still have appointments, considering you know there aren't that many shots to go around. But that's the best way to go about this, is to look online, pick the pharmacy closest to your home, and call and see. We're expecting some details at some point soon about more AstraZeneca vaccine that will arrive in British Columbia. For now, this is going to go to the group 55 to 65, which is what's eligible now. But that could change, too. We saw the change earlier this week, Jill, as you know, around, you know, that second track, the priority workers getting the shot. It's no longer that group because of advice from the Federal Advisory Committee on Immunization. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, so for people that phoned, should they, I know there's there were some questions about this as well, even how this all came about. Was this the AstraZeneca dose or the vaccine that was going to expire? So they wanted to get it out yeah. there? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the 14,000 some odd doses of AstraZeneca that BC still had that was set to expire April 3rd. We have more AstraZeneca than that, and it's unclear exactly how that is going to be doled out and when, but this is the expiring dosage. The other issue, Jill, I have heard so much from people is confusion around the ages. This is separate from our age-based program. This is solely for the AstraZeneca vaccine. It was originally for priority workers, but because of guidance around potential uh, risk of blood clotting, they have now focused in on the 55 to 65 range where there are no health concerns linked to AstraZeneca. Um, and then the Pfizer and Moderna program is still operational. And I'm hearing from a lot of people born in 1949 and 1950 who are anticipating getting news of being able to book their appointments. This hasn't been delayed. It's just not going as quickly as it was before. The province is now focusing on Moderna and AstraZeneca on the clinically vulnerable and booking them in. And your time will come if you are listening and you're born in 1949, 1950, 1951. The province hasn't forgotten about you. You haven't been replaced by essential workers. Your time will come. The province is still on track to have this group vaccinated by the middle of April, which was the original timeline. We've been moving pretty quick, and now we're sort of going back to you know where we were expected to be.
Uh, and I think that might be where there's some confusion too. When you're talking about the age groups and the year of birth, I'd seen uh, some people posting about that as well. The 55 to 65 who, and like you said, if there are still appointments left, can phone and book those. Is it if you are already 55 or is it the birth year that you are turning oh. 55 this year? Because it seems to be, it seems like it might, people are, are hearing different answers to that. Yeah. So this one is not clear. The province on the age-based program calls it, you know, 80 plus, but it's if you turn 80 in this year. This language has not been as clear. So it is by your age today. So if you are between 55 and 65 today, you can book AstraZeneca. This does not displace when you can get access to Pfizer or Moderna. It's just getting more vaccines in the more arms of British Columbians as we can get closer to herd immunity. We're now at nearly 15% of the eligible population vaccinated. We are a long ways away from herd immunity. But every vaccine that gets into an arm of a British Columbian is one step closer uh, to uh, protecting ourselves from the spread of COVID-19. And so I know there's confusion around the dates and the ages and when you can call, but but this is if you're 55 as, as of today, up to 65 as of today, and you live in Metro Vancouver, call your local pharmacy to see if you can get AstraZeneca. And the reminder is there are far more people in that age bracket than the 14,000 shots that are available. And we're hoping to get details soon about when more shots will come. Uh, and on the bright side, because there was such a huge response, uh, it, clearly there are people that are fine getting the AstraZeneca, yeah. as we've been told. Yes, there were uh, some concerns, and that's why they've shifted the ages, but it is safe. Um, I think you answered this, but just to be uh, overly clear, a listener just wrote to me saying, hi, if we don't want the AstraZeneca vaccine, can we wait until our age group comes up for the Pfizer vaccine? This is somebody who's 59. Yes, you can. And that is a big question that I get a lot of. And I'm more than happy to take the same question lots of times, Jill, because it's important <laughs> to get the information out there. I know people are desperate for it. So if you do not want to get the AstraZeneca vaccine for whatever reason, and, and all the guidance we have heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry and our health officials is based on the programs that are ever evolving, every shot that is going in the arms of a British Columbian is safe. And... That is the advice we're getting from health officials. But if for some reason you are reluctant around AstraZeneca, you can wait till it is your time in the age-based program for Pfizer or Moderna. We're getting more details on that rollout. Uh, the online booking system comes into effect April 6th. Uh, that will have a tick up as well, but it will streamline how people can book their shots. But yes, you don't have to call in. You don't have to accept the vaccine. It is not mandatory for anyone to get a vaccine of any kind. If you do want to wait, you do have that option. Uh, and you mentioned the online booking. And that's also, from what I understand, causing a few problems. So we were so happy when it first, first started. The, the online booking in Fraser Health was working yeah. so much better. Uh, but I understand now there's a bit of a, a glitch there or a pause as that system is now yeah. uh, integrated with the provincial-wide online booking system. So my understanding is they are doing technical updates in Fraser Health. So I've received a lot of emails about this as well. And the understanding is that the call-in line is still working from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I think based on my memory, you can go in and book online on Fraser Health from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. The maintenance is taking place as we move towards the transition on April 6th. Uh, so there still is an online option available, but we know that the online system was pulled offline for a few days to do some of that maintenance and that maintenance work is still taking place. 
So hopefully that doesn't add to the confusion. I know the phone lines have been very busy as the province works through the clinically vulnerable to get their vaccination shots. The most important reminder in all of this, Jill, everybody will get their turn. Be patient. It's going to take some time. This is not without its problems, but we are working our way through it. So yes, the the information I gave is correct that between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m., access to Fraser Health self-serve online booking tool uh, will operate. Uh, on Friday, April 2nd, and Monday, April 5th, the online tool will operate from 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. April 3rd and April 4th, it will run from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. as we transition to April 6th and the full province-wide online system. Hopefully anyone in <laughs> Fraser Health Listening, you jotted down those times and that all makes sense. Yeah, a lot of different windows uh, to to keep track of. Uh, One other question, and I think you touched on this earlier. Uh, If people are concerned, pharmacies tend to, and in some cases, they can be very small. They can be crowded at the best of times. Uh, Should people be worried about going into pharmacies? Um, Are pharmacists vaccinated about uh, looking at that environment? Yeah, it's a great question. Pharmacists did more than 1 million flu shots during the pandemic. They have the systems in place in order to do it. People are familiar with their local pharmacies, but do not go in person to try to book your appointment. Call or go online, but check the website and call or communicate with your local pharmacy. Check their social media accounts. That's the best way to streamline it, to not inundate them. Once it is your turn to get your shot, you have an appointment. They will spread people out. Uh, it, they are, they have done it before. They can do it again. And lots of people are very familiar with their local pharmacists. So yes, they have the capacity to do it. And based on the pharmacies themselves, Jill, that may, um, mean how many, uh, it may adjust how many appointments they actually have based on the space and the capacity that those pharmacies have. All right. Uh, Lots of information. And like you said, uh, we'll be getting more clarity uh, and more uh, information on this uh, in the hours and days to come. Richard, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Joe. We are talking a little bit about travel now, and the last U.S. airline still blocking out middle seats is going to end that policy in May as air travel recovers and more people become vaccinated against COVID-19. That decision was announced earlier today by Delta Airlines, reversing a policy that had been in place since last April. Delta Airlines is the last U.S. airline still blocking middle seats, but it's ending the practice starting in May. Delta says nearly 65% of its passengers who flew last year expect to have at least one dose of the new vaccines by May 1st. And that's giving the airline the confidence to sell flights to full capacity. Let's bring on Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets, joining us now to talk about this and a couple of other travel stories today. Claire, great to chat with you. You too, Jill. Yeah, this was an interesting story. They, Delta has really been a holdout. You know, we did see a couple of other airlines block middle seats, some of them for months, like Southwest, Alaska, and JetBlue. Um, it was interesting, though. United never did it. And American, they did it just for a really short period of time. But Delta, I think they almost, in the end, used it as a marketing ploy, you know, for those people who just felt that having a middle seat empty between you know, the window in the aisle seat made them more comfortable. Um, but I, I'm surprised it actually went on this long. Uh, yeah, when I first saw this story today as well, I thought it was a mistake at first because I didn't realize they were still doing that. I thought all of the airlines had gone back to with the enhanced cleaning and the air filtration that they were all uh, selling all of the seats that they could. 
Yeah, you know, and I think um, Delta now realizes that they they now need to kind of recoup some of the losses they've had losses for a long time, like all of the airlines. In fact, um, they, in starting mid mid April, they are going to be selling ancillary items again: snacks, beverages, cocktails. I mean, the airlines make a lot of money from that type of sale, so um, that's coming back in, into play. And and keeping in mind, they did this very carefully. They wanted to make sure that their customers felt right. They actually surveyed their own customers and that was what the stat that you read that they they found that nearly 65 percent expect to have received at least one dose of the the vaccine it doesn't mean that that delta or any airline is going to be taking away all of the other health and safety protocols that they have in place um you will still need to be masked still socially distancing uh in the lineups and that's going to continue for the foreseeable future I, i would expect that for much, much, much longer, um, but they will be starting to make money. And and all of the you know studies that have looked at the spread of viruses on board flights shows that it's really low because of the strong ventilation systems and the high grade air filters on most planes. And I know my son was pretty nervous, and all of his friends when he went back to university back east, and he um, he said everyone on that plane was so careful and compliant, and they weren't you know, serving meals or anything. So um, it's slowly as vaccines are are administered and doses get out there. um, It's just more assurance for customers and these types of things we'll start to see happen. Uh, have you heard anything uh, about uh, when we're talking about dining too and you're mentioning that they're going to start bringing back some of those items food and drink on the planes what about in the airports uh, as far as restaurants and that are we seeing those reopening as well? It depends on which airports. In the U.S., they are so so much further ahead of the Canadian airports. The Canadian airports are really, really suffering um, because there are so many restrictions uh, still that the Canadian government has in place, and, and rightly so. It is not the time to be traveling at the moment until they can get a handle on this and do vaccines spread. Um, but there are many airports, especially some of the regional airports, Jill, that are absolutely suffering. The, the losses are enormous. Um, it doesn't take much to find out. You can do a Google search and take a look. But a lot of the very small uh, stations have actually closed um, I know that Air Canada stopped Kingston Airport. Well, obviously, gives gives away that my fa- my son goes to Queen's University. Um, but the fact is, is that that station's been closed, and it's one of many across this country. Um, I just read today that Nanaimo is getting support, um, the much-needed support it needs. But it's it's a, a tough road for all of the businesses that are in the airports and the airports themselves. Uh, what do you think it's going to look like then? And I know there's there's no magic wand or, or crystal ball, but like you said, with these airlines in the States, anticipating that people will have had their first dose at a certain point, the safety protocols still stay in place. Um, the spread has not been happening on airplanes, uh, airports, even though we, we do get exposure notices, but not transmission uh, nearly as much. Uh, do you think things that we're going to see more people more comfortable to fly come, say, summer? Well, uh, in the U.S., Jill, it is shocking. They've had a more than a million travelers going through the U.S. airports for the last 20 days in a row. That includes, of course, spring break. Um, and although that March traffic is down half of what it was in the same month of 2019, it just shows you that the volume of travelers in the U.S. is out there. But CDC is still advising against travel, even for vaccinated, until they have herd immunity in the, in the U.S. So I think Canada is going to be slower. Uh, it obviously is already um, just not only the rollout of the vaccines, but I think they're going to be cautious. They're going to be cautious in what they allow and, 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 and how they go about it.
Uh, I wanted to ask you about another story as well, and this one coming out of the UK, taking a look, and not a huge surprise that the majority of flights are taken by a, a much smaller percentage of the population. And the UK is looking at a possible tax on frequent flyers. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think it has much in the way of legs, Jill. <laughs> I think um, so. This is um, being put forward by Greenpeace, and they want to charge um, people the more they fly. So a tax that actually increases the more flights that you take. And then they are also saying that they want to tax air miles. And in fact, they want them banned because it encourages frequent flying. Um I, I, I know that it's a small minority typically that fly. It's obviously um, the wealthier crowd who end up taking more flights um, and, and many business people who are traveling for business. But I, I don't think it will take hold. You know, I just, um, it is very interesting. And it, we are obviously in a climate crisis. But I think that people already who fly pay such huge taxes that I think that taxing them more is going to be hard to pass through government. Because uh, it just goes so much against, uh, like you mentioned, the points programs and that. And it is expensive for many people. It's something you save up for, maybe do it once a year, once every few years. And to penalize people because they're doing it more does seem really counterintuitive. It it really does. Um, yeah. The, so I, I'm, I'm really interested to watch what happens in the UK with this, but I don't think it'll go anywhere. I think that the um, the aviation tax reform closes on June the 14th. So people are consulting with the government now and organizations like Greenpeace and others. And it's not that I'm, you know, I, I, I support climate, um, what's happening and, and, and doing our part, but I'm not sure it's right to tax people who travel more. I guess it's coming from someone like me who travels a lot. So, I, well, I used to. Right. Anyway, <laughs> but even that, I uh, used to. Yeah, and I think I, I would put in the, in the same category, in, in that we all recognize that climate change is an issue and things need to to change. But maybe instead of taxing people who are flying on flights that are scheduled flights, uh, you know, you could take the radical step of maybe saying we're not going to allow private jets anymore. We're going to clamp down on that because you would think that's got to have a much bigger footprint. Uh, somebody flying around the world on their private jet compared to somebody wedged into that middle seat right interesting that the whole thing i mean is it's it begs the questions on, on many many different levels <laughs> i wonder what's how it's going to take hold the fact is, is that there's no real not a lot of planes flying at the moment so um that has that has certainly helped but uh, I, I don't know about this tax jill i don't know about it <laughs> I, I think you're right it's not uh, it's interesting idea but i don't know that it's going to get a, a full uh, a lot of buy-in from people on that for sure uh, not not from someone like me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Claire, thanks so much. Always good to talk with you. Thanks for joining the program. Thanks so much, Jill. Bye. We're, and we're still reviewing uh, the report, but let me highlight some of the concerns that have come up to date. Um, the report lacks crucial data, information, and access. It represents a partial and incomplete picture. Uh, there was a joint statement, as I noted, that was put out. We also welcome a similar statement from the EU and EU members, sending a clear message the global community shares these concerns. 
there are steps from here that we believe should be taken. There's a second stage in this process uh, that we believe should be led by international, international and independent experts. Uh, they should have uh, unfettered access to data. Uh, they should be able to uh, ask questions of people who are on the ground uh, at this point in time, and that's a step the WHO could take. All right, that was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki talking about the WHO report that takes a look at the origin of COVID-19, outlining just a few of the concerns uh, so far. Tristan Hopper, who is a columnist with the National Post, has also written a great piece about the flaws in this report, and he joins me now to talk more about that. Tristan, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, A lot of people are raising some concerns, asking some questions. So what did you raise? Or what do you think maybe tops the list as far as flaws when it comes to this report? Ooh, I'd say the biggest flaw is that uh, you basically, every step of this report uh, was done under the strict supervision of the Chinese government. So you're essentially saying, oh, yeah, we're we're, going to put together this report. Uh, that's going to just be an investigation into the origins of COVID. Oh, and an authoritarian government, uh, which has a major interest in obfuscating the origins of that uh, of that disease, uh, will be sort of supervising every step of the way. So there's there's, there's literally no way uh, you can get an accurate reporting uh, under those circumstances. So what we're seeing is uh, you've got. Uh, Basically, all of the the U.S. can't really agree on much these days, but basically Democrat and Republican can both agree this is a completely sham study. uh, And you're seeing that right now. And you're even seeing doubts from the WHO. Uh, So the head of the WHO, who hasn't been known for his critiques of Chinese policy, uh, he's usually praised it, uh, even when that's extremely not warranted. Uh, Even he, when this report came out, he said, this is a little uh, slanted towards the Chinese. And we need to investigate particularly um, the theory, uh, which is gaining ground. Um, I've heard lots of senior microbiologists. This isn't just the darker corners of the Internet saying that this really looks like a virus that escaped from a Chinese virology lab. And that really hasn't been investigated. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. Uh, Any attempt to investigate it is uh, very much obfuscated. Uh, by the Chinese government. Uh, Did anyone expect that given the parameters of this report that we would get something that would uh, be uh, clarifying of this and that wouldn't uh, have shown, wouldn't have had witnesses, people who were asked questions all under the careful watch of the Chinese government? No, no. As soon as the the structure of this uh, was put together, we all knew it was going to be a sham. So you actually had an open letter uh, while this investigation was still ongoing, saying, uh, no, this, here's some clear problems with this. Uh, we're not going to find anything new. Uh, if you really want to investigate it, here's what you actually need to do. So this started, uh, I believe it was, I think it was Australia who first sort of pushed for this and said, we need an investigation to find out where this came from. Did it come from, uh, did it just naturally come from a bat? Uh, so that's, that's what China's telling us. It's saying, oh, there was just a, a bat and it just sort of coughed on someone and it just came out of nowhere. And then you have other people, including the former head of the CDC, Robert Redfield, and uh, saying, uh, I don't know. I mean, you did have a novel coronavirus crop up within walking distance of a lab that investigated novel coronaviruses, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that institute uh, had a bunch of uh, complaints about its lack of security long before this pandemic ever started. Um, so you basically have a big building filled with coronaviruses that can infect people that kind of has a problem with uh, security and keeping those things safe. So 
that's uh, that's all circumstantial evidence. There's no smoking gun saying that this escaped from a lab, but that um, if it didn't escape from a lab, it's uh, one of the weirdest coincidences in the world that this just happened to occur in Wuhan, which has the world's largest facility for investigating coronaviruses and primarily bad coronaviruses. And is the issue there, then, if if it came out that it did escape from this lab, the next question I would imagine is, well, how? Was it an accident or was it something more sinister? And is that where the Chinese government simply doesn't want to go? Uh, yeah, obviously. You can imagine if we did that. And lab escapes happen all the time. Uh, they happen in the U.S. Uh, our uh, Canada's big lab, the National Microbiology Laboratory uh, in Winnipeg, there's been sort of lab escapes uh, from there. So the theory is, uh, I'm not seeing any sort of legitimate voices uh, saying that this was like an engineered Chinese bioweapon uh, or whatever. I, I think the implication is that uh, you had some staff members working on uh, a coronavirus um, for for legitimate reasons. Uh, these these are for reasons of public health. You're trying to get, uh, you're trying to understand viruses. You can sort of preempt the next pandemic. And the implication is that in doing that, uh, some members got sick, and then they go home, and then this spreads to the wider community. Um, so you can imagine if we did that. Like imagine if there was just some huge cock up in Winnipeg. And then we've unleashed the worst uh, pandemic of the last hundred years on the rest of the planet. Uh, the Canadian government would be uh, highly incentivized to cover that up in some sense. We would probably fail to do it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, an authoritarian government that has a history of making uh, uncomfortable things disappear. Yeah, uh, of course, they're going to be doing everything in their power um, to even even the implication that that's the case, even if it isn't true. Uh, just to make it go away by any necessary. Right, because it's not even just the uh, releasing of it, even if it's accidental, it's the releasing of it and then lying about it and letting something go that could have been contained, uh, but as you said, then became the worst pandemic we've seen uh, in recent history. That's right. Um, So one of the most uh, critical things in this investigation is, uh, so the the investigators, they're not hacks. I mean, these are microbiologists. These are actual scientists who work for the WHO. They, they were sent there. Um, but it's, it's a crappy report because there's very little they could get their hands on. And one of the biggest things was they asked the Chinese government, hey, can we get the first 174 cases, documented cases of COVID-19? Because you really need to figure that out if you're going to find out where a virus came from. You know, if we find out that uh, you know, 50 of these people, um, I don't know, had relatives at the Wuhan Institute of Virology or whatever, or they you know, been eating bats recently or something, uh, you need that. That's the most important data if you're going to find out where the uh, where a, a pandemic comes from. And China said, no, no, you can't. You can't see those data. No, just trust us on it. Um, so, yeah, obviously, uh, without just basic critical data like that, uh, you're, you're not going to get anywhere closer to the truth. No, it's like the ultimate in contact tracing, isn't it? And just uh, not being able to do it at all. Yeah, like uh, the example of SARS. So when SARS hit Canada in 2003, we know the exact person who brought SARS to Canada. Uh, it was an older woman who uh, was staying in, uh, I think it was a hotel in Hong Kong, and the floor of the hotel uh, had SARS. And then we would, when we did our sort of post-mortem of how SARS infected Canada, we had the minute-by-minute movements of this woman who she spread it to, yada, yada, yada. And then that was in t- intensely critical in figuring out where the disease came from and how it spread. Uh, but in the case of China, where they're just saying, no, no, it just, uh, you know, first there was nothing. And then a bunch of people were sick and we don't know why. And uh, please stop digging into this. 
uh, yeah, that's not a satisfactory answer for a lot of the world community. Uh, you touched on this and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, obviously a part, a very big part of this investigation, but the investigators, again, only being allowed like a, a very, very short amount of time. What was it? Four hours at the facility and staff. Again, anybody asked any questions were doing so with the Chinese government officials right there. Uh, what's the point even really? I mean, I guess you have to try, but it's not as though you're going to get any information from that. I don't know. I think maybe this was the, the, the WHO was thinking, oh, we'll just do this and this will kind of uh, satisfy everyone. And then it became even more farcical uh, than, than they had assumed. So, yeah, basically, I mean, because uh, it, it sounds like every step of this, there was, there was very few opportunities to look at raw data. And they did not uh, go to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I mean, there's, there's ways to do forensic audits of these types of things. So, if this had happened in Canada or the U.S., presumably there would be a political push to do a forensic audit of what happened at the lab. And instead, you just have this roundtable meeting uh, with Chinese political representatives at the table. And uh, you can imagine if any scientist actually says, oh, yeah, we, we screwed up and this is why we might be responsible for this global pandemic. There's going to be you know strict personal consequences for that individual. So there's reasons to believe you're not hearing the truth. And uh, every step of this investigation, uh, I mean, all the WHO team had was uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology essentially turning over their records and saying, well, here's our records showing that we don't have any safety problems, and they sort of photocopy them and they leave. Um, so that's not a tremendously satisfying investigation. And it, it, I, I mean, it's, it's standards that no one would trust in any other context. And I think much of the world's scientific community is not. Uh, so is that it then? And we will never know for sure, 100% proven where it came from, how it spread, the, the information about those first cases, or is there anything else that can be done to try and get that? I don't think the, uh, I don't think the lab leak theory is going to go away. Uh, maybe at the beginning of this, there was an idea that, okay, but the lab leak theory will go away once we have this sort of, uh, you know, we'll send this team to China and it'll be all figured out. Uh, but that's not going away. And you're having, um, like uh, earlier this week, you had a former CDC director, Robert Redfield. He's not a political appointee. This is a lifelong virologist thing. As a virologist, um, the lab leak theory sounds to me the most plausible. And this is this is something I've also heard um, from senior Canadian scientists who are not saying it publicly because they just don't, don't want all the backlash. But, yeah, it's it's emerging as it's definitely not a fringe view among virologists that this is something that could have happened. Um, so I don't think that's going anywhere until there's a much closer analysis of what happened. All right, Tristan, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Thank you.